Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, April the 5th, 2023. It is currently 1030 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it was in this studio. Yeah, hear me hitting the microphone. Hear me hitting the microphone. It was in this studio where I wasn't hitting the microphone, but it was last night, late last night, that I was in this studio, not hitting the microphone. I hate when I do that. I was not hitting the microphone, but it was in this studio late last night that we started a sermon review, a sermon on the subject of assurance of salvation. How are you sure that you are saved? How are you sure that you are going to heaven? How do you know for certain that you are saved? Your sins have been forgiven. What leads to assurance of salvation? And we know that within Christianity, there is a, well, I know this is going to come as a shock to you. There is disagreement on this subject. I know, shocking, isn't it? Amazing that we can't agree on anything. But there are some who say that your assurance of salvation is based on what you do and what you don't do. You look at your life, you look at your actions, you look at the sins you're committing, the sins you're not committing, how the good things you're doing. And if you have enough good things, you do enough right things, and you're not doing the wrong, and you're not doing too many wrong things, then you, my friend, you right there, I see you, you can have assurance of salvation because you demonstrate it. The other side are people more like me who says, wait, 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 wait. You can't look to yourself for assurance of salvation because God's standard is perfection. God's standard is an obedience, a holiness, a righteousness that is pers- personal, that is perfect, that is exact, that is entire, that is perpetual. And no matter how much I look to my life, I'm always going to fall short. God's standards are love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I'm never going to even come close to that. Love my neighbor as myself. I'm never going to come close to that. Be ye holy as God is holy. I'm never going to come close to that. So if I look to myself, then I have to start trying to grade on a curve, right? Well, it's not perfection. It's direction. And some, and I just kind of come up with these little cliches, but that's so subjective. So how do I know whether, how do I know? To me, if you want assurance, don't look to yourself, look to the perfect, completed work of Jesus Christ. Look to his righteousness, look to his obedience, because that righteousness and obedience is imputed to you by faith alone. So if you say, hey, if you're truly saved, you'll do this, 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 and this, and this. And I will say, fine, make that the test. In Christ, I do all of those things. In Christ, I'm forgiven for failing to do any of those things. And not only that, when you look to scripture, we have two examples, Matthew 7 and Luke, I believe, 18. We just talked about it in the previous broadcast. We have two examples of people who look to their own actions as some kind of evidence that they were saved. And in both cases, they were not saved. Their external righteousness was not proof of salvation. 
So right there should call say, well, wait a minute, then how does that work? You look to Christ righteousness, but some say look to self, look to action. Others say look to Christ. I'm in the look to Christ camp. And I know that the other camp will say, that's easy believism. And that's that, and you can call it whatever you want. But Christ's righteousness is perfect. My righteousness is far from it. So if I'm going to have any kind of assurance, then I'm going to look to Christ because that will never change. If I'm looking to myself, I can only have assurance for maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, because I could walk away and then have a sinful thought. I could lust. I could covet. I could... Immediately, and it was, well, 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 well. No, you don't have to be perfect. So now imperfection gives me perfect assurance. See, that just makes no sense. So we started reviewing this sermon. The reason we're reviewing this sermon on assurance is because someone asked me to. So that's what we are doing. Last night, we made it about six to seven minutes into the sermon. But I said that what I would do today is I would just start it right back. Almost at the beginning, I skipped the introduction and the prayer, so we're starting at about the two-minute mark. I'm just going to let it pray. I'm going to let it pray. I'm I'm going to pray. No, I'm going to let it play uh, and um, just try to interrupt it just a very little bit until we kind of get caught back up. There are some, some, some issues I have here. They're utilizing the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Please don't think I'm attacking the London Baptist Confession of Faith because we utilize that at our church, right? We, we use that as a, as a as starting point for our theological and doctrinal beliefs. But we just know this as, as a church. This is what confuses some people. We are not bound by any particular document. We may use it. It may be the basis, but scripture is what we try to rely on. I love the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I think everyone should read it. I think everyone should study it. I think everyone should know it. I love it very, very, very much, but I am not bound by it. So if I sound like at any point I'm disagreeing, it's just because I have certain ways of looking at things that I think are somewhat different than that, but not nothing serious. Well, you, you can draw your own conclusion, but um, I just think whenever you're looking at any kind of confession of faith, you always have to stop and ask some serious questions. And sometimes because there's some things that I just think Christians don't think about when it comes to these subjects. Hey, you're saved by an imputed righteousness, but the only way you know you're saved is by looking at a practical righteousness. Well, imputed does not produce a practical righteousness. It's imputed. You're almost calling for an infused righteousness, which is Roman Catholicism, which I 1000% reject. And I know Roman Catholicism very well because I attended a Roman Catholic university to obtain a degree, to work on a degree and Catholic theology. So I know when I'm hearing just a basically modified version of Roman Catholicism and an infused righteousness kind of concept, and I reject it. And if you want an infused righteous concept, go ahead. I don't. I want an imputed righteousness idea. But my salvation is based off an imputed righteousness. Now, I know I'm going to get 100 emails going, but, 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 shouldn't we? We should live godly lives. We should pursue righteousness. But I don't look to that as the basis of my salvation. I look to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. His finished work. All right, there there we go. So are you ready? Let's just jump back into this. It's only about a 30-minute lesson. 
So uh, a lot of this at the beginning, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to stop from interrupting it. I know you're getting ready to laugh at me because I'm probably going to hit play and interrupt in five seconds, but I'm going to try not to. Here we go. Well, this is, uh, I've jumped ahead this morning to, this is the, the 18th chapter uh, of the confession. Uh, it's on assurance of salvation. And we've been in chapter six, uh, considering the fall of man. And then the next chapter is um, chapter seven of God's covenant. And uh, Brother Carlton is going to be teaching on that in April. And uh, then um, I want keep the notes. Keep the notes. They're free today. Next time. I don't know, we, you know, but um, keep these because um, next week uh, is prayer. The week after that, Scott Bills is teaching, and the week after that, we'll be back. And so you, you got to hold on to these notes for at least two weeks, and uh, we'll be we'll be back um, in, in March nineteenth. And then, um, okay. Um, so, eighteenth chapter it deals with the the theme of uh, assurance of salvation. The title of the assurance of grace and salvation. It consists of four paragraphs, um, and assurance of salvation is one of those uh, subjects that uh, immediately, I, I think, commends itself to our thinking process um, in terms of being very important because it directly deals with the salvation of our soul. So it's, it's a very compelling theme, and uh, you know, just by way of testimony over the years. I'm just throw this out there, and he's getting ready to talk about over the years all the people who struggle with assurance. But I would challenge you, or at least for you, to just think this about. I'll think about this: How important is assurance of salvation to one's Christian life? Some would argue assurance leads to complacency and apathy and the lack of zeal and pursuit of holiness. Because if you know you're going to heaven, then why would you care? Why would you strive? Why would you do anything? Like, I mean, like it, it would almost lead to a, 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 a detrimental, it would be detrimental to one's pursuit of godliness, righteousness, and holiness. Many who would who believe you can lose your salvation, many charismatics, Church of Christ, those who believe you can lose your salvation, that's what they always, oh, you think you just because you're quote unquote, once saved, always saved. Well, guess what? That's, that's, that's not true because it leads to people not pursuing God. So they say you can lose your salvation, which should motivate people to be more godly. But I've known plenty of people who go to charismatic churches, Church of Christ. They're no more godly. They don't pursue, pursue godliness any more than people who believe in eternal security. So I, I don't believe that that necessarily works. But a lot of people claim that assurance is a negative thing. Others will say that if you don't have assurance, that it's a negative thing. So how, how important do you think assurance is to one's spiritual life. I know this, whether you have assurance or don't have assurance, I know this, you're still going to sin and you're still going to put yourself before God <laughs> because you have a sinful nature. Assurance or lack of assurance doesn't get rid of the sinful nature and the sinful nature is the root of all of our problems. And that's not going away until glorification. I know I, I, it's, it's almost like a newsflash, but if, in your mind, how important do you think assurance is? And if you do believe assurance is important, then you have to have something that actually leads to assurance. Because I guarantee you, looking to your life and saying that the way you know you're saved is based on if you do this and do this and do this, well, you can never be assured that you're saved until you get to the end of your life and then look at the totality of your life to determine if there was enough of it to prove that you're saved. Any assurance you have today is 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 a mirage. It's 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 a lie because you may not have that same level of fruit six weeks from now. 
So your assurance at best can only be a moment-by-moment thing if you're looking to yourself. Now, if you're looking to the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ, your assurance is perfect, it is secure, and nothing can change that. Because no matter how much I fail, doesn't change the imputed righteousness of Christ. Just, just a thought. But how important is assurance, right? He's going to talk about many Christians don't have assurance, and let me tell you why they don't. Because the church constantly tells them to look to themselves to find that assurance. All right, here we go. I've observed some folks that, uh, from my perspective, are very spiritually minded and, and serious about their, their faith and their love for Christ, but yet they, they've struggled with this area of assurance of, of salvation. And from my perspective, I, I always want to be careful because there's that passage in the Old Testament about saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. But it's always been an encouragement to me when somebody is concerned about the And that passage in the Old Testament where it says, peace, peace, and there's no peace, is that referring to people's salvation? Or is that referring to the fact that, I don't know, an army was about to march in and take you captive and bring you into Babylonian captivity? I I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just just a thought, just a thought. The the salvation of their souls. On the other hand, there's others who uh, don't don't seem to be as concerned about that. They they tend to take it for granted, and um, that is a bit more uh, concerning. Um, Have you just noticed that on the second page or so of your notes, um, just to kind of uh, introduce it a bit further, um, this is some information from R.C. Sproul that I'm borrowing clearly from here. And and the doctrine of assurance answers the question, what we're dealing with, can I know that I'm saved? You know, can I know that I am saved? And and Sproul points out here that there's four positions with respect to this particular doctrine. Uh, The first one is there are people who are unsaved and know they're unsaved. Uh, These people are aware of the enmity they have in their hearts towards God and clearly want nothing to do with Christ as their Savior. Uh, They're bold to proclaim that they do not need Christ. Such people are often openly hostile uh, to the gospel. And under, under this, this this heading here of people who are unsaved and know they are unsaved, there's really different versions of that. And probably some, you have some people that come to your mind. I know I've shared before many, many years ago, my, my dad wanted me to go in and share with my uncle, who was in his 80s at the time. He was dying of cancer. And so he just wanted me to go and talk to him about his soul. And, and he was not hostile but he, he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He told me it was just like a, like a tree out there that falls down. And it was kind of discouraging, you know, but I was able to share some things with him. But you've probably talked to people like that that just, they just don't care. They're not interested. And others are more hostile to the gospel. So that's, that's one position. Then another, uh, number two, um, there are people who are saved but do not know they're saved. Uh, these people are actually in a state of grace but uncertain of it. Perhaps they're wrestling with sin in their lives and, and, and doubt their own salvation because of a troubled conscience. Uh, in this group are those who have not yet made certain that they are among the elect. And the confession deals with this issue in, in paragraph four. And then a, a third position is people who are saved and know they are saved. And this is the group who are, um, are certain of their election and calling. Uh, they have clear and sound understanding of what salvation requires and know they have met the requirements, which would be repentance and faith. And I I just find it interesting that he goes to these four groups of people, the first person unsaved and knows it. And then the second uh, Sproul's out. One of our listeners found a PDF file of Sproul's lecture here. So it's really cool that they sent it to me. Uh, But the the, Sproul has it as the third person. This person puts them as number two, saved and knows it not. 
So here's someone who's saved, but they don't know it. Hey, I'm saved, but I don't know that I'm saved. Well, why do they not know that I'm saved? Because either one, the church is pointing them to their own actions to prove that they're saved, which I think is a problem. I think a lot of people who saved and don't know they're saved is because they're not looking to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right? And then he says the third person is the person who saves and knows it. And then he's going to look at the fourth person. All right? Here we go. They believed in the testimony of the Holy Spirit when he witnessed to their spirits that they are the children of God. In paragraph two, the confession deals with that particular uh, issue. And then number four, there are people um, who are not saved but confidently believe that they are saved. All right, now the fourth group are people who are completely unsaved but they're assured of salvation. So you can have people who are saved, but don't know it, but you can have people who are not saved, but think that they are. What leads to this? I think in both cases, the people who are saved and don't know it, I think what leads to that is because people are saying, you're going to look to your actions. Do you pray enough? Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Well, some people, if they're open and honest enough with their lives, will be like, how can I ever be assured of my salvation? Because I'm never godly. I never love God enough. I never do this enough. For some reason, some people can just be like, yeah, I, I, I do enough. I don't know. Others, at least for me, I would be like, I, I, I'm, I would be saved and not know that I'm saved because I would never be able to, to, to know it because I would be constantly looking at my actions going, any reasonable person would say these actions can't prove that I'm saved. But so for some weird reason, most of the evangelical world's like, yep, sure. Sure, I'm, I'm good enough. Sure, I'm good enough. And then you've got the fourth group of people uh, that, that are unsaved, yet they're like, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. They're, they're, they're completely unsaved, but they think they're safe. Why? Because once again, they're looking to, I think they're looking to their actions. And they're the people that we see in Matthew 7 and in Luke 18. Lord, Lord, didn't I do this and this and this and this and this and this? And I thank thee, God, that I do this and I'm not an adulterer and I'm not an extortioner and I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do that. Well, see, I know I'm saved. I think in both cases, looking to action will either destroy assurance when you should have it or give you a false assurance when you shouldn't have it. That's the problem with looking to self, looking to actions. These people have assurance of salvation without salvation. The first part of paragraph one deals with with that. Um, And at least from my own perspective, and this is just, you know, speculation on, on my part, this is, um, a, a real sad category because it's it's people who believe that they're saved but they're not saved, and I'm just persuaded because of easy believism, easy believism, and Arminian theology. There's lots of people in that category. They made a decision for Christ at some point in time. There's no fruit in their life. There's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's no interest in. So immediately, what does he say? He thinks the problem is easy believ- believism and Arminianism because they think they believe but they don't have any fruit. But see, I think if you look to your fruit, it will either lead you to no assurance or false assurance, depending on how honest you are with your actions. See, we're in a completely different perspective here. And holiness. So there's, I think, probably lots of people in that particular category who do they think they're saved because they made a decision 30 years ago or 10 years ago, but but nothing much has happened since then. So I, I think there's probably many in that. And I can't stand that. They made a decision, but nothing happened. 
Well, well, wait a minute. If they put their faith in Jesus Christ, something dramatically happened. Christ's righteousness was imputed to them. How can you say, hey, they put their faith in Christ, but nothing happened? What are you talking about? If they put their faith in Christ, they were declared to be righteous by an imputed righteousness. But he's he's, he's like, they, well, they, you know, they made a profession of faith, but nothing happened. Meaning he's wanting to see actions, actions, which literally to me leads to he has to believe in an infused righteous concept. They, they put their faith in Christ, which means they were infused with righteousness, and now I don't see it. So if I don't see it, then they were never infused with it, meaning they were never saved. That's Roman Catholicism. We supposedly believe that by faith, we are declared to be perfectly righteous. We are, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are holy. We are obedient. All of our sins are forgiven. What do you mean nothing happened? You don't judge, you can't judge someone's salvation by what happens in their practical life because something happened in a, a, their, their positional standing. Because the minute they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're adopted into the family of God, all of their sins are forgiven, and they are declared to be 100% righteousness, and Christ's passive and active obedience is imputed to their account. You don't see any of that. It's a legal transaction, or we sometimes refer to it in theological world and the theological world as forensic justification. Now he would believe in everything that I am saying about justification. He would agree because he's holding to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Go look at the chapters in the London Baptist Confession of Faith on justification. Everything I'm saying, I'm reading it word for word, but there's this massive disconnect between the, the discussion about justification and then how that's supposed to play out in our life. But if I believe in imputed righteousness, whether I see it in someone's life or not, the key is, are you trusting in Christ and him alone for salvation? If they can honestly say that, then something happened because they're saved by faith alone. Their salvation is not based on what they do or don't do. It's what Christ did. The particular category. So, um, uh, Sproul is helpful from that perspective. And the, the, se the second thing I want to do here by way of introduction, and really the whole time this morning is kind of introduction to this particular chapter, but I want you to just, just kind of give an overview of um, the, the, this particular uh, chapter itself. And so, uh, in verse 1, excuse me, chapter, uh, paragraph 1 can be divided into two main sections. Um, the reality of false assurance and the certainty of true assurance. So paragraph one, two main sections. The reality of false assurance, the certainty of true assurance. So the first part reads, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state, excuse me, in the favor of God and a state of salvation. So that would be the reality of false assurance. Okay, now let me stop here. This is kind of where we stopped last night. Because he kind of just re and and I'm not criticizing him because I'm guilty of doing the same thing. I yesterday I did a I, I did a live broadcast where we're looking at a book by Tozer and I felt like I, I read an excerpt from the book and I felt my reading of it was just trash. So here he just kind of like okay, this is what it says. Let me read paragraph one of chapter 18 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I'm not saying I can read better than him, but I'm just going to try to go slowly so you can hear it. Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men 
may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. So immediately they're like, hey, there's these people out there who could think that they're saved, but they're not really saved. Now, what's fascinating to me is the scriptural support for this is Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Now, why that's hilarious to me is because that that gives me, those are people who look to their external actions to prove that they're saved. Matthew chapter 7, if you don't know it, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, um, I'm in Matthew 17, that makes absolutely no sense, right? Matthew chapter 7, I was like, that is not the scripture. I know this scripture, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, they're acknowledging him as Lord. Have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto you, I never knew you depart from me. So immediately, so here's an example that those who have a false assurance are those who look to themselves. They're looking to their actions. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all of these other people. I don't commit adultery. I don't look at pornography. I don't extort people. I, oh, well, congratulations. Well, see, most Christians would say, see, that proves you're saved. The London Baptist here is clearly identifying that those who have a false assurance, at least the scripture that they're offering, are those who look to their own righteousness. Now, I know that there, that that's going to be used to argue almost opposed to that, but I just want you to see that's exactly how it plays out. Now, the, the confession goes on to say, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity and endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Now, immediately what's crazy here is what do they do? How can you have good assurance? See, there's false assurance, but the scripture that they use to prove the false assurance are people who look to their own righteous actions. Then it immediately flips around and says, how can you have certainty? Well, once again, looking to your life. How can you have certainty? Here's how you can have certainty. That you love him in sincerity. So do you love God sincerely? You you endeavor to walk in a good conscience before him. So I guess you don't actually have to walk in a good conscience. You just have to endeavor to do so. See how subjective that is? Uh, Then you can have uh, uh, some certainty that you're in a state of grace. Now, the state of grace is very much a Roman Catholic phrase. That, that's, that's the whole, in Roman Catholicism, if you commit certain sins, you're no longer in a state of grace, right? If you commit a mortal sin, you're, well, this is saying, hey, the way you can know that you're in a state of grace is that you love God sincerely and that you endeavor to walk in all good consciousness. Do you ever truly love God sincerely? Like truly because we love ourselves. See, that becomes subjective. You're like, well, I mean, I love him some. I mean, like, I'm trying. That's subjective. I know this. Christ loved the Father perfectly. Christ walked in good conscience perfectly. His obedience and righteousness is mine by faith. True assurance comes by looking to the finished work of Christ. All right, well, let's, let's see how he looks at, uh, handles this paragraph. Then the rest, the certainty of true assurance. 
yet such as true, truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So paragraph one, those two main points. Paragraph two, the basis of assurance. The basis of assurance. This certainly is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed until the day of redemption. And then paragraph three, so the basis of assurance, then paragraph three. Okay, he's just flying through these paragraphs, like flying through them. Like it, it's kind of it's kind of frustrating. I, 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 I'm assuming because they they're only giving him like thirty minutes or less than thirty minutes to teach. I, but I, I, I would be just focus on one paragraph. Like I, I, but okay, that that's just my own personal preference. Let me read paragraph two in a much slower way. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. So this certainty is not just conjecture. This this certainty is not uh, a probable persuasion uh, grounded by uh, a fallible hope, but it is an infallible assurance of faith. Now, I do believe that my certainty is grounded upon an, it's an infallible assurance of faith because I have faith in Christ. It is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. I completely, my certainty does not come to the the fallibility of my own life. I I, I, I would stress this. It's founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ. Let Let me explain. By putting my faith in Christ, all my sins are washed away in his blood. So if I look to my life and I see sin, that doesn't change anything because all that sin has been forgiven. And it's based off a righteousness that's been imputed to me. Now, here's where it gets all subjective. It is also based upon inward evidences of those grace of the spirit, which unto which promises are made. And on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. Now, that's where it becomes all subjective. Now, it's how I feel and what I do. My salvation, my assurance of salvation cannot be based on how I feel because there's plenty of people who feel saved. We've already determined they can feel saved and not be saved. So then how can you base it off a feeling? Well, the Spirit will give me assurance. There's lots of people who claim the Spirit gives them assurance. Doesn't mean that they're saved. That's a feeling. Feelings are subjective. So I, I, I don't believe that's the basis of assurance. And actions. Well, actions can't be the basis of my assurance because my assurance is based off the action of Jesus Christ, his blood and his righteousness. If I base it off my action, well, we've already seen in Matthew 7 and Luke 18 that they looked to their action and it led to a false assurance. I could look to my action and be depraved, uh, deprived of assurance, even though I should, because my actions, I would feel like I never prove it. So this is where the London Baptist Confession of Faith gets convoluted to me. 
The first part I am such agreement with. And then that second part, I'm like, you just took away my assurance by giving me these very subjective things like feelings and actions. Right now, he jumps immediately to paragraph three. The attaining of true assurance, the attaining of true assurance, Um, the infallible assurance doth so long does not, excuse me, the infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may without extraordinary revelation in the use of right, in the the right use of ordinary means attain thereunto. And therefore it's the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness and the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far it is from inclining men to looseness. Okay, man, he's just flying through these paragraphs, flying through these paragraphs. These paragraphs can be broken down for, for weeks, months. All right, now, paragraph three is even to me more convoluted, all right, um, because... He says this infallible assurance that so there's a such thing as an infallible assurance. Now, I agree there's an infallible assurance. Now, the minute you say an infallible assurance exists, I know I have to look to something that is infallible. Can't be my feelings. Can't be my actions because my actions are fallible and my feelings are fallible. So if I'm going to have an infallible assurance, what do I look to? I look to the infallible God, right? I look to the infallible righteousness of Christ. I look to his perfect righteousness. I look to his actions. But it says that this infallible righteousness does not, be, does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and struggle with many difficulties before he can find it. So he says, hey, you may not, you may not just get this assurance. You've got to work for it. You've got to fight for it. You've got you to look for it. And you've got to use these things called ordinary means to make your election and co- your calling an election sure. That then, then, uh, then you can have all the benefits. I, I see, I don't, I reject that. That I have to try, like, how do I find assurance? Oh, I've got to work for it. I've got to work for it. No, no. You want assurance, stop working for it and look to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Rest in it. Don't work for it. Rest in it. If someone says, how do I know I'm saved? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work alone? Do you believe Jesus Christ died for all of your sins and that all your sins are covered in the blood of Christ? Do you believe that by faith, his perfect righteousness was imputed to you? Yes, 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 yes. Okay, then you're saved. People say, no, 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 no. You got to ask them, do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do this? Well, how can they ever know they're saved? They're looking to the fallibility of their own actions and their own feelings. Something that's infallible, God. Something that's immutable, God. Don't look to the mutable changing tides of your own actions and feelings. Look to that which is immutable, which is God, his word, his his finished work. And then paragraph four, hindrances, hindrances to the experience of true assurance. Paragraph four, true believers 
may have the assurance of their salvation. Divers is kind of an old word for many. Uh, divers' ways shaken, diminished, and inter- intermitted, as by negligence and preserving of it, or by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which and by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. Okay, now again he's flying through these paragraphs at a rate of speed that's that's weird and crazy to me, but okay. All right, this is paragraph four, again, of chapter 18 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now, once again, this to me gets convoluted. This is the, this is the problem within the whole Christian world and how to deal with assurance. So here he says, now you could possibly lose it. Now, why could you possibly lose it? You could fall into some secret sin. Now, right here, I just lose my mind. I just lose my mind. So let me make it very clear to every Christian. Anyone listening to me, you sin continually in thought, word, deed, action, and what you do and what you fail to do externally and internally. You're always in sin in some way, shape, or form. Let me give you Three scripture, three concepts. I, I do this all the time. I know many of you get tired of hearing it, but I hope that you never forget it. Okay. Oh, wait, wait. let me show you. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You never accomplish that. You fall short of that constantly. Love your neighbor as yourself. You fall short of that constantly. Be ye holy as God is holy. Those are three scriptures, three laws. You fall short of those laws continually, meaning you're in a perpetual state of sin. So if sin can lead to you losing your assurance, then how can you ever have assurance because you're always in sin? So what we do is like, well, 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 you can't do those perfectly. But what we're looking for is that I'm, I'm trying, I'm going in the right direction, meaning you're making it as subjective as you can make it. And the more subjective you make it, and the more you water down the supposed test that you give everyone, then the test actually become meaningless. Either the test demands that you love God or it doesn't. Either it demands that you're holy or it doesn't. So they come along and say, well, you could lose your assurance because you fall into some sin. You're always in sin. So how can you keep your assurance? By not looking to yourself, looking to the finished work of Jesus Christ, where that, that the finished work of Jesus Christ is not impacted by your sin because it was perfect. It was completed. So uh, those are kind of four main paragraphs that we'll be uh, dealing with. And what I want to do in the balance of our time this morning. Oh, okay. I think what he just did there is just read them quickly. And then they're going to work through them over the next couple of, of sermons. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense, I guess. I, 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 I don't know. You can, that just gets into your own way of you want to structure your sermon. So he just, I, and, and, and probably the reason he could read it that way is everyone sitting there has the paragraphs in front of them. But he just, I guess he just wanted to kind of just let everyone see them. Okay, that, that, that's okay to do that way, I guess. For, I was getting a little concerned that that was going to be the way they covered the paragraphs, but now it makes a little bit more sense.
is, is make four points about this particular chapter. So these are kind of general points, and then we'll delve into it a bit more uh, next time together. So four, <clears throat> excuse me, four general points about the chapter. And, and the first one is simply, and you might have noticed this in, when I was reading through it, but first one is to notice that there are multiple references to 1 John. It's a pretty small book of the Bible, but you'll notice here, there's many references in this particular uh, chapter to First John. In fact, if you, if you go back and just look at your notes, um, you'll you'll notice under the first paragraph and then number three, you know, there, there's several references to First John there. And then if you go to the second paragraph, you'll notice uh, number three. There's a reference to First John two, First John three. And then if you go to the third paragraph, you'll notice number two. There's a reference to First John chapter four. And then um, also the, also number one, First John five thirteen. And then number five, there's a reference to First John. I think three times there. Um, and then in paragraph four, um, number two, or another. And just so that you know, the reason that there's all these references to 1 John is because everyone treats 1 John as a test book. And how do you know you're saved? You read 1 John, you test yourself, and then you'll know you're saved. But the way we always do that is 1 John is the test book, and then we immediately come back and go, well, this is the test, but no one's going to do it perfectly. Well, this is the test, but no one's going to do it perfectly. This is the test, meaning then it becomes subjective. Now, I got no problem saying it's a test. It's a test. And if I don't, if this is not true of me, I won't be saved. But Christ did it all for me. <laughs> That's the only way to pass the test. And if you think you can pass the test in what you do and don't do, you have to live in complete denial or you have to so water down the test that you can find a way to convince yourself that you're accomplishing it, which to me is delusion. I think first and foremost, First John is a polemic against Gnosticism and it's comparing Gnostic concepts with concepts that would be more in line with the true gospel. Right, because Gnosticism would deny things about sin, because you, you basically with your body you could do whatever you want, because that didn't matter. Your body did basically it was sinful, and so it didn't matter what you did with your body. You could you could be righteous, and and um, you could be righteous no matter what you did with your body, and 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 because your body was basically viewed as sinful, and you can't do, and it, it was irredeemable basically. So we go through some of the Gnostic concepts. It's a polemic against Gnostic concepts. When it mentions their Antichrist, he's, uh, John is referencing the Gnostics. This is all dealing with Gnosticism, 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 Gnosticism. So we, we've, we've done an entire series on First John dealing with some of those issues. We still probably need to do more work on the Gnostic uh, connection to First John uh, and how that it's a polemic against it. But just so that you know, yeah, that's the reason First John is referenced over and over and over again. All right, let's continue. The reference to First John chapter three and verse nine. I might have missed one, but the thing is, when when you look at all of the scriptures here related to assurance of salvation, you'll you'll notice there's many that come from the book of First John, which would suggest this must really be a helpful book with uh, with with respect to the issue of assurance of salvation. And the fact of the matter, uh, it is. Um, Robert Law wrote an older commentator. An older commentator wrote a book. It's entitled "Test of Life." It's a commentary on First John. And um, as I indicated, and what I find fascinating is everyone says First John is the book to go get assurance. I think anyone who actually reads First John and actually took the test and even was remotely honest with what's going on inside of them would all walk away saying they failed the test and nobody would get assurance. But okay. All right. Everyone just views First John as the test book. That's how I was taught in every Bible college and seminary I ever went to. 
I think verse 13 might be a key verse, but I wanted to just press this a little bit further. Notice again, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God for this reason, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this idea of knowing is repeated several times in the book. Let me give you an idea of this. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 5. Chapter 2 and verse 5. But whoever keeps his word... In him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Uh, Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then chapter 3 and verse 4. And say, just think of that one. We know know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, what we do is come along and say, yes, that's true. You know you're saved if you keep his commandments. I mean, but no one's going to keep them perfectly. Let me give you three commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be ye holy as he is holy. Oh, wait, you don't ever do those. So I guess you don't know God. Well, no, 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 no. I don't have to do it perfectly. I just, see, then you start watering it down, watering it down, watering it down. I got no problem. Say that's true. I know him if I keep his commandments. Perfect. Okay, that's a good test. And in Christ, I keep all the commandments because Christ kept all the commandments. It's the only other way to get around that. You either water it down or you say that people lose their salvation. Right? Some t- people go to First John to teach that you can lose your salvation. So just, so, I mean, there's so many different ways of approaching it, right? Like you got some who say, well, see, that proves you can lose it. No, 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 no. You can't lose it. Okay. Well, I can't lose it. So then, oh, I got to water the test down. So at least, well, as long as I'm keeping some of the commandments, well, what does that even mean? And then wait a minute. And, and, and the gospel of Matthew and in Luke, the two examples of people who had a false assurance were people who would have said, I'm keeping the commandments. And remember the rich young ruler? I've kept the commandments. Oh, really? Have you? Go sell everything and give give it to the poor. I would love someone to take 1 John and tell me they passed that test because they keep God's commandments. Because I could find a couple of commandments and say, well, oh, oh, you keep the commandments? Well, then go sell everything you have and give. Oh, you can't do that, can you? Oh, 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 you, 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 you really, you really love God. And well, well then send me a check for $5,000 to show that you really love God. And you put the ministry of, of the gospel before everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, it, it's, it's easy to say that we are keeping his commandments until we're really put in the corner. And then we would be like, you know what? I don't keep your commandments. I fall short of them. But that, that's just, you can just go through First John and do this. Either you got to believe you lost your salvation. You never got salvation. You're just going to be all over the place. Now, I do believe that the Gnostics would have said it doesn't matter if you keep the commandments. And John's trying to argue that keeping the commandments is important. And I do believe some would argue first John is saying that if we don't do these things, that we no longer have fellowship with God, but we're still saved. So see, there's just like, we, we could go through, I think there, there's probably like five, six different ways people interpret first John. So there's not even agreement on it, which is just so maddening. 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Then verse 9. I mean, mean, that's, hey, you got to love people if you're saved. Well, we can all say that we love people, but do you really? Because I've seen in the church such a lack of love, okay? I've seen some really messed up stuff in my life in the church. That really demonstrates a lack of love. But oh, but, 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 hey, we all passed the test, right? We all passed the test. 
We all, we gossip, we slander, we backstab, there's church splits, there's division, but hey, 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 we all passed the test. Well, I, I don't think the people in 1 Corinthians would have passed the test for crying out loud, but Paul didn't say they were lost. He said that there were babes in Christ and they were carnal, but they were divided. They weren't loving one another. Paul, in fact, has to emphasize love in 1 Corinthians. 19, the same kind of language, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Should start with verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And then uh, chapter 3 and verse 24 Uh, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. In chapter 4 and verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. Um, In chapter 5 and then verse 19. So there's lots of verses like that that it just kind of presses upon us this idea of assurance of of salvation. Uh, James uh, Boyce, in a work entitled Foundations of the Christian Faith, I said Robert Law had a commentary um, entitled A Test of Life, and and James Boyce kind of breaks this down a little bit uh, and indicates that there there are three main categories. So test of life, and there are three main categories to consider. The first is the doctrinal test. all right, so now, so he's going to go ahead and go, going to lay out the test. Now, we have used, just so that you know, in, in all of my preaching and teaching over the years, we, I've done these tests countless times. I've done these tests with my church. I've done these tests in podcasts, just saying, let's be honest. And at least my church is always willing to go, well, I failed the test. And I'm like, well, congratulations, we've all failed the test. If we're even remotely honest with ourselves, we failed the test. We failed the test. So then what's our hope? My hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, he says there's a doctrinal test. Now, I love how we do the doctrinal test because there is probably a doctrinal test, but we have to then assure which doctrines do we test because, well, all right. And I think First John lays out basically the doctrinal test in First John would be you're not following the Gnostics, but all right. Doctrinal test. That has to do with believing the right things. And so at your own leisure, you can pursue this at greater, um, in greater depth. But this is brought out in chapter 2 and verses 18 to 27 and chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6, the doctrinal test. Let me just read a part of that in your hearing. Uh, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. That's referencing the uh, Gnostics who would have denied Christ took upon human flesh because he couldn't have had human flesh because flesh is sin. You get the idea. So... Right, so I do agree that there is a doctrinal test in First John against the Gnostics. And if you go back, chapter two and verse twenty-two makes the same point. Chapter two and verse twenty-two, 
who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So from a broad perspective, chapter 2, verses 18 to 27, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And, and Boyce puts it like this. In other words, John is giving a confession which includes Christ's full divinity. God became incarnate, incarnate in Jesus Christ. So the doctrinal test, it's a persuasion of the divinity of the person of Christ, that he is truly God. Well, then secondly, there's the moral test, doctrinal test, then the moral test. All right, now there's the moral test. Now, this is, now please note, all of this, all of this assurance is coming from looking to yourself. What do you believe? What do you do? How do you feel? It's you, 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 you. So at this point, our assurance, forget Christ, forget his finished work, forget his imputed righteousness. It's all us, 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 us. And I think the minute the the focus becomes on us, there can never be true assurance if we're even remotely remotely honest with herself, especially when we come to the moral test. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 3, the moral test, or you could call it an ethical test. By this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. The one See, now, how do we know that we're saved? We keep his commandments. <laughs> All right, I'll give you three. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be ye holy as he is holy. How are you doing? How are you doing? You passing? Who says, I have come, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. All right, now, if you're saved, you're going to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. Now, let me just help you out. He was sinless. He didn't just sin less. He was sinless. If the basis of my salvation is walking as Jesus walked, then I have to be without sin. You can't modify that and water it down. If the test is I will keep his commandments, I can't say, well, no, 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 no. I just mean that means I will try to keep his commandments. No, it would demand perfection. And then chapter 3, verse 4 and following makes is under the same category. The moral test, everyone, excuse me, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as See, no one who knows him sins. Now, what they say is, well, no one who knows him has a habitual sin. Well, wait a minute. We're all habitual sinners because we sin every single day. You're going to sin from the moment of salvation until the moment of glorification. So, uh, so what do you mean? Well, because they always say, well, it's not habitual sin, but we're habitually sinning. So how do you, well, like, you can't take these tests and say, this is the test and then water it down to such a level that then everyone can say, look, anyone listening to those moral tests, I will keep his commandments. I will walk as he walked and I will not sin. Well, then anyone who actually reads 1 John and takes the test serious would be like, well, 
pastor, I'm not saved. Well, and, and, and if, if the pastor is even honest with you, well, nobody is. So we're all going to hell. So then what's the answer, pastor? Well, the answer better not be found in us and what we do or don't do. The answer may be found in Jesus Christ, who, guess what, never sinned. That, that's the only hope. Yes, he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. I see that no one practices sin, but we practice sin every single day. That, that drives me insane how Christians don't understand this. We literally convince ourselves that somehow we don't practice sin. You sin constantly. Remember, sin is any, any lack of conformity to the holiness of God. You lack conformity to the holiness of God in your thinking, in your words, in your desires, in your deeds. You lack conformity to God in your external actions and in your internal motivations. We practice sin every single day. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And uh, James Boyce has a clarifying point here. He says, simply put, um, those who know God will increasingly lead righteous lives. It does not mean they will be sinless. Remember uh, in chapter one, it says, if we say that we have no sin, See now, immediately, and I know this James Montgomery Boyce test, trust me, I've got his commentary on 1 John and Foundations of the Christian Life that he's quoting from is the very first book I ever read as a Christian. I was a teenager, walked into the Bible bookstore in Butternut Street in Abilene, Texas, and I was looking for a book. I'd only been saved for maybe a couple of days, and I didn't know what to look. I was kind of like over all all the youth books, and then the older gentleman said, no, you need need something more substance, and handed me James Montgomery Boyce. I'm forever grateful for that book. Love that book. Love James Montgomery Boyce. Probably listened to millions of hours of his teaching. Uh, okay, a little bit of hyperbole, but a lot of his teaching. And very, very much grateful for the book. But this is where I just have a problem. Hey, here's the test. But no, no, no. It doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. It just means you're going to increase in righteousness. Well, wait a minute. The people in Matthew 7 and Luke 18 obviously increased in righteousness and they still weren't saved. Okay. So how is this a guarantee that I would even be saved even if there was an increase in righteousness? But once again, you're watering down the test. So what does that mean, an increase in righteousness? What does that mean? As long as, I, as, long as I'm doing something. So then the test really become, you almost take the teeth out of the test. So you have to water the test down to such a level that people go, oh, see, I'm saved. No, no, no. Give the test some teeth. And then guess what? People won't feel like they're saved. So either you water it down or you don't water it down. If you don't water it down, nobody is saved. And if you water it down, then the test basically becomes meaningless. Or you say the only way to pass this test is in Jesus Christ. Sin, we, deceive, we deceive ourselves. But he says, but they will be moving in a direction marked out by the righteousness of God. He further points out, if they are not increasingly dissatisfied uh, with and um, distressed by sin, they are not God's children. All right, so, so now see, now he's changed the test. See, if, if you don't become increasingly dissatisfied, if you don't become increasingly distressed by sin, you're not saved. Well, wait a minute. No, the test says I will stop sinning. He's like, no, you'll become more, you'll become more distressed over sin. That's not what the test was.
The, the fact that I'm becoming more distressed over sin means I keep sinning. <laughs> so wait, so he takes a test that says you won't sin, turns it into a test that says you'll become more distressed over your sin. And if you don't become more distressed, well, then you're not saved. How real distressed are you over all your sins? How distressed are you over your thoughts? Your, come on. I, I, you Christians are not that distressed over their sin. If they fall into a big one, oh yeah, public scandal, distressed, right? Embarrassing, humiliating, distressed. But I'm telling there's constant sins that you're not that distressed over. When was the last time you were you were distressed over the fact that you never love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? When was the last time you were really, truly distressed that you don't love your neighbor as yourself? When was the last time you were really distressed that you're not holy as God calls you to be because he calls you to be as holy as he is? Because you know you're never going to be that. So I, this might kind of sound a little bit tr- uh, trite, but it's not perfection, but direction that is important, the direction of righteousness. So see, it's not perfection, it's direction. So the test that seemed to call for perfection, then we look. So here's the thing. Now, look what he just did. You need assurance of salvation. It doesn't require perfection. It just requires direction. But God's law demands perfection. <laughs> so God's laws, God, God's law demands perfection, but we say we can have assurance of salvation without perfection. How can I have assurance of salvation without perfection when God's law demands perfection? Oh, I know God's law demands perfection and Christ provides said perfection. Therefore, my assurance should be found in God's perfection, not in my imperfection. John, he's introducing two kinds of people here. Those who claim to know God, but do not keep his commandments. And those who obey God out of a genuine love for him. So we have... See, now it reverts back to not direction. Now, there's two kinds of people. The people who claim to know God, but they don't keep his commandments. And those who obey his commandments. Well, wait a minute. You just said it's not perfection, it's direction. And if it's just simply direction, I'm not always going to obey his commandments. So do I have to obey them or not obey them? Or do I simply have to try to obey them? Which is it? Why Why is, does Christianity create the most? It's always funny. Like we're going to teach on assurance and you get 18 minutes into a lesson on assurance and it's the most convoluted mess that you can create. Second place, the moral test, or you could call it the ethical test. And then thirdly, <clears throat> excuse me, the social test, the social test. So doctoral test, moral test, social test. And um, I'll just read to you a couple of verses here from the Gospel of John that bear upon this. This is from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then in first... And then what's it? So now we're going to have like, okay, you got to obey... And now you have to love. Now, it's not going to be perfect love. It's going to be an imperfect love. So, so once again, it's not going to be perfect obedience. So somehow my imperfection, 
So it's not going to be perfection. It's going to be imperfection in both obedience and love. And my imperfections can somehow give me assurance of salvation. Why would I look to imperfection to give me perfect assurance when I could look to perfection to give me perfect assurance? John really presses this point. Uh, kind of the main um, areas would be uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And just two verses, uh, verse 10 and 11. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. The one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Then another section that deals with is verses 11 through 18. 11 through 18. And here notice just verse uh, 3, 11 through 18. I'm sorry, 3, 11 through 18. Notice verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then another section would be chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. And again, just two verses from this section. Verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. So a really clear statement is back in chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 are this social test. It's a- I just find it fascinating, fascinating that we're 20 minutes into a lesson on assurance. And guess what? We've not been pointed to once. The imputed righteousness of Christ. This is a lesson on assurance. Guess what? We have not been pointed to once. The blood of Jesus Christ who washes away all of our sin. We're 20 minutes into a lesson on assurance. Guess what? We've not been pointed to once. Christ's passive and active obedience that's imputed unto us. And all of the things I just mentioned are all mentioned in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. What blows my mind is when the writers of the London Baptist Confession of Faith gets to the subject of assurance, they abandon the imputed righteousness of Christ. They abandon the blood of Christ. They abandon the passive and active obedience of Christ and like, look to yourself. Now, the the London Baptist Confession of Faith is not near going to the extremes that he is because he decided to go listen to James Montgomery Boyce to get a lesson on assurance instead of going to thinking about it from a theological perspective. I don't care what James Montgomery boy says, as much as I respected him and loved his teaching and am grateful and was discipled by him in many ways, I'm sorry, no, Uh, I'm not going to look to myself. I'm not going to look to all of these so-called tests because I would be looking to my imperfection to obtain a perfect assurance versus I could look to the perfection of Christ to give me a perfect assurance because in Christ, I am perfect. It says the one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So the, the thought here would be that um, if a person is a Christian, they've been dramatically and profoundly changed by the Spirit and the and once again, if you become a Christian, you're dramatically changed. 
are we saved by an imputed righteousness or an infused righteousness? Would someone in the Protestant evangelical world ever figure out what we actually believe? If it's imputed, it doesn't change us. It just declares us to be forever changed positionally. Let me make it very clear. Positionally, in Christ, I'm a new creature. All things have become new. The old is completely gone. In Christ, the old is gone. Everything has become new. I'm a new creature. That's true positionally. That is not even remotely true practically. You know why it's not remotely true practically? Because the sinful nature remains. If the sinful nature remains, then I'm not a new creature and the old isn't gone. And behold, not everything has become new because I'm still got a sinful nature. But positionally, Everything is new. The old is completely gone because in Christ, I'm dead. I no longer live. I am holy and I'm righteous. But we constantly talk about this transformation that will happen practically. But practically, I'm still a sinner. So I can't look to the supposed change that happens to me practically because whatever supposed change is imperfect in a million different ways. And imputed righteousness doesn't produce said change. Imputed righteousness declares me to be righteous, even though I'm very much not. There will be a love and a compassion for other brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, what, I, what I would do. And look at how frequently Christianity has not shown love and compassion. It's not shown love and compassion to our enemies. We've not shown love and compassion to one another. Look at all the fights and arguing and backbiting and gossip and slander and church splits. That's happened in church history here simply um between now and next time if this is kind of an area that you're struggling with um i would commend the reading of first john probably only takes about 10 minutes or so to read it but if you read it over and over again it's, it's really a good book to go to with this area of assurance of salvation and yeah go to first john and look at yourself get first john look in a mirror and you will get assurance how about go to first john and look to jesus christ because if you look to first john you're going to be utterly and totally destroyed and, um the, the warning would be that um i got this from a professor in seminary he says what this book does it, it puts you on the razor's edge mm-hmm. and you, you land on one side or the other and and, and so it, it does do that but if you get too discouraged, then just go to Romans chapter 7 and read where Paul talks about, oh, wretched man that I am, and it might help a little bit. But it's a very, very helpful book. This is a book that deals with... How confusing is that? Go to First John. If you get too discouraged, go to Romans where Paul's like, hey, oh, wretched man that I am, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't... How is that... Get, that that's just going to lead to more confusing, confusion. Hey, go to 1 John to determine if you're saved. But if you get discouraged, go to Romans and then you'll see that Paul's like, well, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do are the things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Well, then what's the answer? We're now 21 minutes in. He's yet to point us to Christ. Not once has he pointed us to Christ for assurance. With assurance of salvation. So if you pray for the help of the Spirit and read it, it's it's a very, very helpful book on that particular issue. It deals... Pray for the help of the Spirit. Now, again, if we can pray to get the help of the Spirit so that we can understand a book, you think after 2,000 years, there would be some agreement in Christianity and even how to interpret 1 John, and there's no agreement on it. So obviously, praying for the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and how to interpret it hasn't fixed anything. 
directly with it. So just to kind of summarize, um, there's a sense in the soul, there's a persuasion in the soul that Jesus Christ is God. That's the doctrinal test. Um, There's a persuasion of the excellence of the commandments of Christ and a desire to to keep them and practice them. And then... Please note how he's changed it. It's a desire. It's a desire to practice the commandments. Now, it's no longer... See, it went from you have to obey them to now you just have to uh, desire them. Uh, Hey, look... You see, this is happens every time I listen to these sermons about the test. The test gets watered down and watered down and watered down. It goes from if you truly are saved, you will obey the commands. Till now, you will just you'll just know that the commandments are good and you will desire them. What? Excuse me. <clears throat> Um, and, and there is a, a true affection for brothers and sisters in, in Christ and a desire to be a part of the assembly of the saints. Now, now it goes from, if you're truly saved, you will love others too. You'll desire to be a member of a church. (laughs) I love that. It goes from, if you don't love your brother, you're not saved. Well, now you'll just, you'll just desire to be a part of a church. See, if you desire to, see, if you desire to be a part of a church, you meet this. Oh man, I've had this trash thrown in my face and I'm sorry to be so blunt but I've had this like because a lot of times churches do their little you know I don't know get together for a picnic get together for a hayride get together for some fun food and activity and I got no problem you want to get together and hang out at the park and talk about the weather go for it doesn't mean I need to show up but because I didn't want to show up to some of their reindeer games and you know, First John says you have to love the brethren. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but when a push comes to shove, yeah, uh, I can I can think of some very clear examples. There was no love shown to me. But see, I all I got to do is show up to fellowships, and then see, I I meet First John. If I show up to a church potluck, I meet First John. But when push comes to shove, where people could really show love, <laughs> they're nowhere to be found. They're nowhere to be found. They're nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Oh, I can give you some strong examples of where Christians didn't show love. So can you. But hey, they're a member of a church and they go to potlucks. That passes the love test. See, we just, we make the test so meaningless. I don't even know why we argue about their existence. Okay, a second kind of uh, main point this morning, just in in observation of, um, of the chapter is you'll, you'll notice here, and this, this relates very much so to assurance of salvation, the centrality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the centrality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the assurance of salvation central to that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, I under, underline some of those. Now, this one is where it becomes very subjective because now you're going to be basing it on some internal feeling, some internal feeling internal feeling. I've talked to oneness Pentecostals who literally deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, they're oneness Pentecostals, and they'll say, I know I'm saved because the, the, I have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. I've had Mormons basically say similar things, but I've had one. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the correct understanding of God. But they, they, they see this becomes this subjective. You've got this internal witness of the spirit that you're saved. Well, how subjective can that be? 
um, in your notes, references made to the Holy Spirit in the second paragraph speaks of the spirit of adoption and then the spirit which is the earnest of our inheritance. Uh, again, in paragraph three, being enabled by the spirit to know the things which are freely given uh, him of God. Uh, again, there's a reference to the, the Holy Ghost in under number three there. Uh, another reference to the Spirit, at least two references to the Spirit in, in the fourth paragraph. So in, in this whole area of assurance of salvation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very important. Let me just give you two verses that speak directly to this. Turn, if you would, to Romans uh, chapter 8 and verses 14 and 15. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Make that verses 15 and 16. Romans 8, 15, and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is central to Assurance of salvation, there is a sense in the soul that I've been regenerated. A sense of you see, there's a sense. There's a sense. I don't know. I don't know how subjective you can get. I mean, that's crazy. I do know this: the spirit inside of me is a guarantee of my salvation because he's given kind of the he seals me until the day of redemption. So I know that because the, because I have the spirit that gives me some assurance. But I'm not going to, based off some kind of a feeling, what happens if the feeling's gone? What happens if the feeling's there? Some people have the feeling and clearly they're not saved. People don't have the feeling and clearly they are saved. The soul of adoption that I've been brought into the family of God. So there's the centrality of the spirit. Another thing that you'll notice here, which is very, very important, and this has to do with achieving, or, or I should say maybe coming to a position of assurance of salvation, is the priority of the conscience, the priority of the conscience. And here, if you would, turn to the last two pages. And the conscience is another, again, subjective thing, because plenty, plenty of times people's conscience won't bother them when it should bother them. In many cases, it bothers them when it shouldn't bother them. So, I, again, these are all very subject. What is He's now 24 minutes, and guess what he's yet to point us to? Anything about the finished work of Jesus Christ. Pages of your notes. And, and you'll see here that the priority of the conscience. Um, last two pages of your notes. You might be shocked by the size of the font on the top of the page, but it's the priority of the conscience. And um, it, it's central also to um, this whole issue of assurance of salvation. And, and you'll notice that I underlined it, I think, also, it, several, more than once it's, it's referenced in this, in this area of assurance of salvation. Um, the, the, the conscience is the moral arbiter of the soul. And, and when we do something, it either says right or wrong. So it's, it's the moral arbiter of the But you can't always, can you always trust your conscience? Now, we, I've, we've done lots of teaching on the conscience uh, and I, all of my issues that I end up having with a majority of Christianity. You cannot always trust your conscience. Man, if your conscience is going to determine right and wrong, you're in all kinds of trouble. The soul. And uh, just here's some texts that I, I have um, that I, I think are helpful to, to bring this out. So it's very important as it relates to assurance of salvation. And you'll notice that several of these texts um, are Paul speaking about himself. And, and, and the reason that's important is Paul's like you and I. He wasn't God. He wasn't Christ. He, he was a sinner, but he had a good conscience. 
that means you and I can have a good conscience, and we need to have a good conscience. So that's that's the reason there's so many quotes in here from the Apostle Paul. Verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9 uh, of Romans and verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This would indicate that a, a good conscience is the effect of uh, being under the influence of truth. And then chapter 1 and verse 19, keeping faith in a good And what this demonstrates is then for you to have a good conscience, you have to do all of these things for the formation of the conscience. So if you if your conscience has not in a sense been formed correctly, then it's going to be a, a, a bad indicator. So it, it, again, all of this becomes extremely subjective. Why would he not point us to Christ for assurance? Good conscience, which some have rejected, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. First Timothy three eight. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then 1 Timothy 4.1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And then 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So there's another one of those texts where Paul can say, I've got a clear conscience. Chapter 24 and verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. So it takes effort. <clears throat> Chapter 23 and verse 1 of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul so, so think about this. How do you get assurance? By having a good conscience. How do you have to have a good conscience? You got to work at it, 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 work at it. So I got to work to get a good conscience. And when I get a good conscience, then I can get some assurance. Oh, I've got to also pass all of these other tests. So assurance has nothing to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's all based off what you do, you do, you do, you do, you do, you do, you do. Looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And this, this next uh, section here indicates that David him, himself, King David, had a, a very sensitive conscience. First uh, Samuel 24, 1. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of uh, En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner... This is just, I feel like this is death by cross-reference. He's just reading scripture after scripture after scripture. He's not dug into any of these scriptures that he... This has been 27 minutes of lots of scriptural references... We've not dug into any of them, no context, no structure at all, and 27 minutes on assurance, and we're yet to be pointed to the imputed, perfect righteousness of Christ or his blood. I would almost call this malpractice from a theological, theological malpractice. This is be theological, like, 
how, how, I mean, even if you believe everything that he has said, would you still not start off that our assurance first and foremost is determined and based off the finished work of Jesus Christ? Here's what he's done in his death. Here's his, what his blood has done. Here's his imputed righteousness. But no, he's not, he didn't even start with that. Recess, recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, behold, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because, because he had cut off Saul, the edge of Saul's robe. Saul was God's anointed. So he didn't have a problem cutting off Goliath's head, but he had a problem cutting off just, just a part of, of, of his robe here because he was the Lord's anointed. So he had a, a tender conscience. So just a helpful quote here from John Given, who's a Puritan. He wrote, get and keep a tender conscience. Be sensible of the least sin. As the apple of the eye, the fittest emblem in the world of a tender conscience, it's not only offended with a blow or wound, but if so much as a little dust or smoke gets in it or gets in, it weeps them out. Some men's consciences are like the stomach of the ostrich that digests iron. They can swallow and concoct the most notorious sins, swearing, drunkenness, and so forth without regret. Their consciences are seared as with a hot iron, as the apostle phraseth it. They have no... They, they, they have and let's remember that David with the sensitive conscience... Committed adultery, may some may even refer to it as rape, tried to cover it up, had the husband killed. I, I don't, so, you know, <laughs> I, I'm all for a good conscience, but obviously a good conscience does not guarantee you that we won't do horrible things because guess what? Even if we have a good conscience, we still have a sinful nature. So once again, looking to conscience for assurance is not that assured have so inured their souls to the grossest wickedness that it becomes as it were natural but a good conscience hath a, a delicate sense it's the most tender thing in the whole world it feels the least touch of known sin and grieves at the grieving of god's spirit good spirit not only for quenching or resisting or rebelling against the holy ghost but even for grieving the holy spirit of promise whereby it is sealed to the day of redemption the most tender-hearted christian he is the, the stoutest and most valiant Christian. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Well, then uh, one final thought here, um, kind of an introductory thought in terms of uh, assurance of salvation is the necessity of diligence, the necessity of diligence. And just a, a text I would draw your attention to here is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, 2 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 10. The necessity of diligence in, in having a clear conscience. I mean, this is just scripture after scripture after scripture, no context at all. And just look, it's what you do, you do, you do. All the focus is on you, 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 you. You want assurance, do something. You want assurance, obey. You want assurance, do. do. It's all about you. It's none of this is about Christ. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. I can find it. Okay. As to this salvation, that is First Peter. Um, 
Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So the idea here is um, diligence is to make haste, it's to be eager. So it, it would indicate assurance of salvation doesn't come easy. It will not come to those who are spiritually slothful. That is true assurance of salvation. So we have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Um, so you'll never get assurance unless you go get it. In other words, you're not going to find assurance in Christ. You're going to find assurance in what you do and your efforts. Oh, uh, uh, unbelievable. The, the, let me just read to you. You can turn if you would like. The mindset that is needed is in Proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. Proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. This is the mindset that is needed in our approach to the spiritual life to have assurance of salvation. Um, Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 1 It says, my son, if you'll receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you... That is not talking about seeking discernment. That is talking about seeking wisdom. You will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So that's the kind of mindset that is needed in the spiritual life to have um, assurance of salvation. That, that, yeah, that may be finding discernment, but not assurance of salvation. That's not what's going to relate to things like faithfulness in, in Bible reading and meditating on Scripture and prayer and avoiding temptation, uh, confession of sin, pursuing holiness. All those are going to relate to assurance of salvation. So there's just some um, introductory thoughts uh, to this particular theme. We'll be back to it um, soon. March 19th, I think. So keep the notes and let us pray. There you have it. 31 minutes on assurance and never was pointed to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is the modern day church. Look to yourself. Look to yourself. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But we supposedly are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Supposedly we're saved by an imputed righteousness. But when it comes to assurance, we don't look to that. We look to ourselves. If you need assurance, look to the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Sorry for the length of this review, but I wanted to finish it all today. And uh, we may look at some more of the messages in this series, depending on the person who emailed me, if they need me to do just that. If so, I definitely will. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.